Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. I grew up with the story of Doubting Thomas. Thomas was a twin, like I am. A lot of people who didn't grow up around the Bible or around Christianity still know what a Doubting Thomas is because it has become a cultural idiom. For instance, two friends get together and one of them says, Hey, you won't believe it, I caught a 40-pound Chinook salmon last week. The other one says, No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. I I don't believe it. Show me a picture. The other one says, You're such a doubting Thomas. And it really doesn't matter if it's a fish you caught or a game you won or an accomplishment or a trip you took or a story that happened. Pretty much everyone knows that a doubting Thomas wants proof. Like that's what they're looking for. In fact, if you look up the words doubting Thomas in a dictionary, you will find them. For instance, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary calls a doubting Thomas an incredulous or habitually doubtful person. Cambridge Dictionary says it is a person who refuses to believe something until they are shown proof. A doubting Thomas is a skeptic. They refuse to believe outside of direct personal experience. Now, of course, that phrase, doubting Thomas, has its roots in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 19, through chapter 21, verse 3. And that's the only place that we find the story of Doubting Thomas in the entire Bible. And so, as the story goes, Jesus was arrested by the Jewish religious authorities and gruesomely murdered on a cross by the Roman political authorities The 12 disciples, Jesus' 12 disciples who were men, scattered. And for the most part, they were afraid. They ran for their lives. The women in the story, the women disciples, showed more bravery and more compassion. They stayed with Jesus throughout his crucifixion. They cared for his body after his death. And everyone thought that was the end of things. But then three days later, Jesus' tomb was found to be open, and Jesus' body was gone. Jesus came back from the dead. It was a resurrection. It was unheard of, even though Jesus had been predicting it. And Jesus went on to appear to various ones of his followers. He surprised them in gardens, out on the roads, behind a locked doors, out on the Sea of Galilee, etc. As the story goes, Jesus' disciples came back together in hiding, 
and Jesus appeared to them behind locked doors. But Thomas happened to not be there. So naturally, the disciples told Thomas that Jesus is alive. Like, can you believe it? We saw Jesus. And Thomas said the famous words, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not have faith. So, a week later, the disciples happened to be gathered in the house. Thomas happened to be with them. And all of a sudden, Jesus appeared to them, even though the doors were locked. And Jesus said, peace be with you. And then he said directly to Thomas, he said, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop being faithless and be faithful. And in that moment, everything changed for Thomas. And he declared, my Lord and my God. And those words might actually be the highest compliment anyone in all four Gospels ever gave to Jesus. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have faith. So, that's the story playing in the background of every person who gets called a doubting Thomas because they ask for proof. They say, show me. They say, do you have a picture? They say, can you do it again? How can you be certain? I don't believe you. And that also happens to be the story that has caused a lot of people to think that maybe it, it isn't very Christian to have doubts. After all, in this story, didn't Jesus basically tell Thomas to knock it off with all of his asking for proof stuff? And didn't Jesus give props to anyone who stops asking questions and just accepts what their friends tell them is true? Well, there's just one problem with all of this doubting Thomas stuff. And it's kind of a big problem. Here it is. The word doubt, doubting Thomas, the word doubt does not show up in the entire story of doubting Thomas. I'll say that again. The word doubt doesn't show up in the entire story of doubting Thomas. Jesus never identified Thomas's problem as a problem of doubt. Jesus said to Thomas, stop being faithless and be faithful. Now, unfortunately, some English translations write the word doubt in, but doubt and faithless, those are two entirely different Greek words and concepts. To doubt Distazo means 
to be uncertain about a particular course of action, to have two thoughts, to think that a thing may not be true or certain, to question one's heart. The Apostle John could have told us that Thomas was doubting. That's a word that certainly shows up other places in the Bible. But evidently, that's not what was going on with Thomas. And evidently, that's not the problem that Jesus was identifying. Jesus was identifying that Thomas was faithless and Thomas needed to be faithful. So what's the difference between doubt and being faithless? What does it mean to be faithless? Well, I will give it to you straight from one of the top Greek-English lexicons, uh, this word faithless, apistos. Uh, this is the very first, the most common meaning of this word, a person who does not belong to the group, in this case of believers in Christ. They don't belong to the group. Now, you may remember when we looked at the word faith, Jesus says, stop being faithless and be faithful. 99% of people on the street in Jesus' day, if you asked them in first century Palestine, like, hey, what, what is faith? What does that mean? They'd say, well, uh, it's loyalty, it's allegiance, it's reliability, it's social concord, it's relationships, it's a willingness to bind yourself to a person or a group. It's that you can count on me factor. People in first century Palestine didn't hear that word, faith, and think about a set of doctrines, a particular set of views, signing their name on a dotted line. Culture affects language, and in individualistic cultures like ours, we make faith into individual beliefs. But in a collectivist culture, first century, faith sounded a lot more like loyalty to the community. Faith was all about whether or not you were tied in and active and connected and committed and loyal to the group. And I'm not just coming up with this. This is the work of some of the top Bible scholars of our day that have spent a lot of time with this word, faith. People like Nijay Gupta, people like Matthew Bates, and others. So, are you catching what Jesus is identifying as the problem with Thomas? The problem is that Thomas was not with the other disciples. Now, I remember as a kid hearing people say, you know, it's it's that first time that Jesus came to the disciples when they were all locked in the room and hiding and Jesus came and people would say, well, he's probably out buying groceries or he had to go to the bathroom or maybe he had a headache. But if Jesus' concern was that Thomas had become faithless, a person who no longer belonged to the group. Remember what that word means? Well, if he was someone who no longer belonged to the group, 
then it seems more likely that now that Jesus was dead, Thomas just wasn't sure it was worth sticking with the motley crew of disciples that Jesus had wrangled up. It's like Thomas looked at the situation and he was just saying, Jesus is dead. Peace out, guys. Like, it's been a good ride, but it's over now. Without Jesus in the mix, there just wasn't enough of a reason to be tied to all these people, these disciples. And so when the gospel writer tells us that Thomas was not with the other disciples, maybe that's his point. It makes a whole lot of sense if we remember how diverse the 12 disciples were. Not to mention the even wider array of people outside of the 12. So just to get a brief cross-section of the diversity of the group, there was Simon, the zealot, uh, and the sons of thunder, James and John, who some biblical scholars also understand to be zealots. So that's three potential zealots, <clears throat> zealots would kind of have this mindset like let's destroy the Roman Empire so when you hear zealot maybe think freedom fighter revolutionary nationalist then there were six fishermen common folk who experienced being exploited by the Roman taxation system every day as they brought their fish to market then there was Judas Iscariot, who some biblical scholars understand is a member of the Sicarii Party, a radical Jewish group of terrorists and assassins bent against the Roman Empire. And the way that they were more radical was they, they weren't just saying, let's destroy the Roman Empire. They were even going a step further, like, Let's kill all of the Jewish collaborators with the empire. Like, you are either for us or against us. Then, there was a doctor of Jewish law, Bartholomew or Nathaniel, who some sources would say was of royal lineage. Uh, going back to kings of Egypt, it's debatable, um, but possible. His father was a Pharisee. Then you have Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who was an agent of the Roman Empire and an agent of exploitation before Jesus. And so at this point, biblical scholar Frederick Dale Bruner points out that a zealot was as far removed from a tax collector as a leftist guerrilla is from a right-wing conservative. Like, <clears throat> at this point, you have a group that is, they, they don't have a whole lot in common, all of them with one another. But that's not all. Outside of the 12, there was an even wider array of people. There was Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, the manager of Herod's household. And she was part of funding this whole movement of Jesus's. Then there were a bunch of other women who were disciples. They were chipping in money and traveling with Jesus and learning, which was completely unheard of. Some of them had un 
had questionable and unsavory past lives. And then you had noblemen and Pharisees, people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, these people who were connected to the Pharisees, but they wanted to be a part of Jesus' crew, but not out in the open. And, I mean, this crew, Gerhard Lofink says, some evidence suggests that Jesus deliberately chose the 12 from different regions of the country and from different factions within the Judaism of the day in order to make obvious the gathering of all Israelites. I mean, talk about a motley crew. They bickered, they fought about who was the best, who was right, who was in charge, who had God's blessing, who deserved to get scorched with fire from heaven. Dan White Jr. describes this motley crew that Jesus called to follow him. He says, it's like organizing a home church with a few Black Lives Matter protesters, blue collar workers who believe Donald Trump will fix the country, a couple on public assistance while working for minimum wage at McDonald's, a wealthy Republican gentleman who owns an oil refinery down south, and a member of Antifa. It's an understatement to say these men would have loathed being in the same room with each other. If it were not for Jesus holding this space, they'd all naturally slide into the cultural ditch of mutual hatred for one another. So Jesus was the person who brought together this unlikely, potentially volatile, highly diverse group of people and initially, he was the glue, holding them all together. Simon, the zealot, didn't sign on to the project because he got to hang out with people like Matthew, the tax collector. He signed on because he got to hang out with someone like Jesus. But a part of what Jesus kept trying to teach his disciples was how to make their own glue. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This was Jesus' final prayer for all who would join the movement after his death, that they might get this glue thing figured out. He said, I pray also for those who will have faith in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may have faith that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So can you hear the concern in Jesus' prayer? It is when religion and empire get together and kill me, and when I'm gone, Will this diverse, unlikely group of people think it's worth it to stick together? That's the concern. Or will they be more like a rock band that loses their lead singer, and so they just break up? So a discussion question here for you, or a reflection question, if you're just listening alone. Think about times when you've witnessed one person being the glue that held everyone else together. And think about times when you've witnessed the community being the glue. What's the difference? 
So reflect on that for a moment. Jesus had given his disciples the glue recipe. Love God, love your neighbor, reconcile, love your enemy, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, forgive, forgive, forgive again and again, pray, care for the poor, do not judge, tell the truth, become great by serving others, the greatest are the least of these. It was the glue recipe. But that glue recipe asks a lot of people. And so it would be no great surprise if it just didn't work emotionally for someone in the group. And once Jesus was dead, they're like, man, I'm not squeezing any Jesus glue out. And they just said, you know what? Without this Jesus guy here in person, it's not worth it anymore. These weird people aren't worth it. I no longer belong to this group. Peace out. And apparently, that is what happened with Thomas. Like, unless I see that Jesus is alive, I'm not going to have faith. I'm not going to be a part of this group. The gospel story tells us that Thomas wasn't there. And the disciples went, and they found Thomas, and they told him, We have seen the Lord, like, i.e., Thomas, if Jesus was your only reason to be a part of this group, he's alive. And so one week later in the story, we find Thomas in the house with the other disciples, with the door locked again, almost as if they're trying to replicate this whole Jesus appearing thing. Was Thomas there that day for all of those other disciples in all of their weirdness? Or was he there only for Jesus to see if the lead singer of the band might still be alive. What he said was, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not have faith. I'm not going to be tied in and active and connected, committed, loyal to the group. So on the face of it, it looks like Thomas was looking for proof. It seems like he's looking for certainty. He wants to know for himself whether or not Jesus is alive. But underneath that search for proof and certainty, something else is going on. And Jesus put his finger on Thomas's real problem. No pun intended. The, the real problem. Out of glue. It was a relational problem. Remember our map, our pie chart of our own doubts and our own disconnections at Neatart's Friends Church? Remember, so we looked at that uh, in our Faith and Doubt series, part one, and then we came back and looked at it again in part two. Our most common struggle in our own sense of doubt and disconnection, it comes from a relational place. For us, 
it can be verbalized as Christians can be jerks. 36% of that's the highest amount of all of our doubts come from that place. We all have vulnerable questions that emerge, difficult questions, unanswered questions, unanswerable questions. And sometimes people use those questions as their excuse for checking out of the community. But underneath it all, is it really a problem of proof, of certainty, of having the right answer? Or is it a glue problem? Is it a relational problem? Is it that we don't yet think these people are worth sticking with? Is it that we're not committed to sticking with this community, regardless of our differences, regardless of our most vulnerable questions, regardless of whatever proof, whatever certainty we do or do not have? Jesus said, stop being faithless. Be faithful. Because you've seen me, you have faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have faith. And I hear those words as something like this. I hear Jesus saying, okay, look, Thomas, I died. You isolated from the gathering. You were no longer bound to the group. You did the peace out move. You weren't with the rest of the disciples. Your lack of certainty, your lack of proof, your differences with all these other people all added up to, you know what? It's not worth it anymore. But Thomas, I want you to be tied in. I want you to be active and connected and committed to these folks, not only because of me, but because you've come to see God in them. Remember my prayer, Thomas? I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity blessed are those who have not seen me those who they don't have their questions answered those who are living with uncertainty and vulnerability and they don't know what story to believe or which direction is up but they have stayed tight with the community with the gathering and they are active and committed and they've kept the you can count on me factor alive. Thomas, don't be shy. I want you with these people. That's what I hear Jesus saying. Is that the lesson that Jesus wanted Thomas to catch? Well, it's fascinating to notice that the very next story that John tells after the story of faithless Thomas in John 21, the story tells us the disciples had traveled roughly 100 miles north back to where they grew up, back home, back in Galilee, and were told that they were together. And were specifically told that Thomas was there. And were told that Peter said to everyone, I'm going out to fish. And they all said to Peter, we'll go with you. Now it's easy to breeze right past that part of the story. We're, we're looking for what's coming next. But what if we don't? Are you catching what John just told us right here 
after the story of faithless Thomas, this group of disciples had every reason to disband without Jesus, without their leader with them. They went back home where it would be the easiest for everyone to go their own separate ways, but instead they were together. They were figuring out what it looked like to be a group, learning to be together without the presence of their leader. They'd never done this before. And notice what everyone said to Peter. He says, I'm going fishing, which is like one person in a way just being like, I'm doing my own thing. And they could have all gone their own separate ways, but they didn't. They said, we will go with you. Jesus had said, stop being faithless. Be faithful. And they were finally learning how to make their own glue. They were getting it. We will go with you. Now, let's step away from Thomas and from the other disciples. And let's look at us for a moment. Neatart's Friends Church. In our own way, we are a motley crew. We are a diverse bunch with all of our own perspectives and backgrounds and questions. Our faith and doubt survey has shown that. Without saying who's who, I know people in our church family who some read the Genesis story as literal, and I know some who understand God as the creative force behind the evolutionary process. We've got folks who are environmentalists, and we've got folks who spray weed killer on everything. We've got folks who are vegans, and we've got folks who are meat eaters. We've got folks who are pretty sure the Bible does not affirm LGBT relationships. And we've got folks who are pretty certain that God and or the Bible is LGBT affirming. We've got folks who want the medical and the scientific community to be respected. And we've got folks who are skeptical of or frustrated with the medical and the scientific community. We've got folks who vote conservative folks who vote independent, folks who vote liberal, and each one carries along some of the various trappings of their given political party. We've got folks who think hell will be eternal conscious torment and folks who don't think a loving God will ultimately send anyone to hell and people all in between. We've got folks who think Jesus was the only son of God and folks who are here for their connection with God and their creator in the spirit but they're not sure about Jesus or the Bible. We've got folks who trust every word of the Bible and they're, they're ready to do what it says wherever they find the command. And then we've got folks who have a million questions about what they are to make of the Bible and what to do with it. And I could go on. And if you're feeling vulnerable, like I just outed you, whoever you are, let me be clear, you're not the only one like you. Our NFC doubts have made that clear. I, I don't think that these sorts of differences that I just described, I don't think they'll ever go away. History bears that out. People always have and always will have deep differences that could potentially divide them. When I'm in my 70s, I'm sure the arguments will be about something else. 
like how are we supposed to use AI ethically or alter genetics or something like that. Just like Jesus' disciples in this series, Faith and Doubt series, we could dig down into our doubts and into our questions and into the places where we're looking for proof and certainty. And we could easily do what Thomas did, which is, look, unless I get the answer that I was looking for, unless I get the certainty and the proof that I was looking for, these people really aren't worth sticking around for. Peace out. Like, I didn't get the answer I wanted. I'm out. We could run into our own glue problems. But what if, with our Creator's help, what if we got the glue part figured out? And what if Jesus' prayer came true, which is, I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity? What if we came to a place where we want to be tied in and active and connected and committed to one another because we've come to see God in one another? And what if we left it to God, our creator, to come to each person in their own unique questions and doubts and leave it to God to open their understanding, just like Jesus does over and over in the gospel story. Like Jesus comes to Thomas. Jesus knows how to put his finger on what's going on. What if we were together in our questions, in our doubts? And what would it look like for us to be a community that lived the lesson Jesus taught his disciples about faith, which they said this way, we will go with you wherever you're coming from, wherever you're at, wherever you're going. You don't have to do this journey alone. You are not alone. Let us be with you. We will go with you. Jesus says, stop being faithless. Be faithful. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet they have faith. So here's my parting reflection question. How can I, how can you be someone who has not seen? That's who Jesus talks about and yet has faith in this coming week. It's not just out there somewhere. It's how do I do this today? How do I do this this week?
Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.